The European Union has not treated us well. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the progressive politics podcast from Brussels. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. I'm Pelle. I'm returning to the show to sit in for Tom this week. I'm a political consultant and former Eurosceptic converted to the European course. In this episode, the competition to become the next president of the European Commission. It's a process meant to give the selection of Jean-Claude Juncker's successor more popular legitimacy. But is this presidential race really just a case of make-believe democracy? We look for answers in the Dutch city of Maastricht, where the candidates held their first official debate on April 29th. Afterwards, I met Professor Christine Neuhold of Maastricht University to discuss what was real and surreal about the event. Maastricht is also where I bumped into Pella Christie of the Brussels consultancy Eurofax. Pella, who talked about democracy on the show in November, first shares his thoughts with me on an evening spent on planet Europe. Pella, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Where on earth were we this week? It was planet Europe of some variety? Well, it, it was in fact Maastricht, but uh, but yes, planet Europe, and, and maybe sometimes in a parallel world it could seem. <laughs> it certainly felt that way at times. It was the first debate of what's called the Spitzenkandidaten process. I use that term reluctantly, but we kind of have to. Well, that that is the term. It is the idea that whichever party grouping wins the most votes in the European elections in May will automatically get to nominate the commission president, no matter if what they get is 10%. It was introduced effectively after the Lisbon Treaty? Well, it was introduced for the first time five years ago. This is only the second time around we're going to try it, and it might very well be the last time. Because it's not exactly caught on in the European public imagination in the way that it was hoped. No, that, that, that's a way to put it. I mean, the whole idea behind it was to get European citizens more engaged, to get more people to go and vote because they felt they had real impact. Uh, and lo and behold, the voter turnout fell last time, just like it's done every election before that. Yeah, it's kind of hard to know what's going to happen May 23rd to 26th with voter turnout. To your point about how this process has not really caught on, you have the first debate ahead of this election and not even the keenest Europeans, many of whom were running kiosks and stalls outside of the event on the Freitag, which is a large historic square in the middle of Maastricht, even they weren't entirely convinced by the value of this debate. I'm always questioning these kinds of e- events. I mean, what's the impact, really? Who is here? Wh- what does it really do? Like, oh, you have all this chit-chat here and also on the, on the, on the square, and it's all so nice and lovely and, and, and cute. But in the end, what do you, what do you make happen? <laughs> so, Pella, who was on stage exactly, just a few meters away from the party square inside of the theater? Well, we had the five of the seven Spitzenkandidaten, these 
candidates who in theory are all hoping to become the next commission president. We had the socialist Franz Timmermans, who is a vice president of the commission, so he knows the game. The incumbent almost. The incumbent, some, some might call him. We have Guy Verhofstadt, the former Belgian prime minister and leader of the liberal group in parliament and who's made no secret of his ambitions to run for higher office in Europe for years. We had uh, one of the stars of the evening, Bas Eickhout, another Dutch politician from the Greens, who really had the crowd going almost as much as, as Timmermans. Double Dutch. Double Dutch indeed. And then we had uh, Jan Sardil, Czech, the former leader of the ECR group in the European Parliament. So the European Conservatives, that group is Poland's Law and Justice Party and Theresa May's Conservatives. Yes, as well as the Belgian NVA that was in the previous government, and the Finnish, uh, the true Finns from Finland that were in government. And then who else did we have there? And then we had uh, the only woman in the debate, uh, Violeta Tomic from Slovenia, who was representing the party of the European left uh, in parliament, known as the GUE group. In planet parliament. There were notable absences. Yes, there, there were two notable absences, one surprising and one non-surprising. And if we take the non-surprising one first, that was uh, Oriol Junqueras, who's the former vice president of Catalonia in Spain, who's from the European Free Alliance, which is a grouping of many of the parties in Europe that wants autonomy or represents minority rights from Scotland and Wales to Catalonia and Corsica. And he's their candidate for, for the commission presidency. But of course, he can't really campaign since he's in prison for more than 500 days uh, following this, the Catalan referendum. And then to make it even more surreal or outwardly, there was the leader and the candidate of the largest political family in Europe, the EPP, the European People's Party, Manfred Weber, that decided not to be there because he had a party function to attend instead. A German party function. A German party function, indeed. And that seems like not what we were promised about Europe. Seven candidates, two of them are not there, one because he's in prison uh, and is being described as a political prisoner by his followers, and one who should be the incumbent and represents the largest group who couldn't be bothered to turn up. When it comes to Manfred Weber and his absence, I really thought that Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico and one of the moderators, did a really good job in general, and he also got a huge cheer for highlighting Weber's absence. Manfred Weber of the European People's Party is attending a celebration of his political mentor in Germany and declined our invitation, an invitation we offered a year ago. So make of that what you will. I think that was completely merited. And I think that Weber is maybe not the biggest on big public debates. At right. least that's the image you get. Right. Okay. So what about gender balance? I, I think Violeta Tomic was added towards the end of the process of putting together this debate. Here's Miss Tomic speaking to me after the debate on her experience on the stage. My first vocation was to be actress. So it was the first time that I was standing on the stage as a politician and uh, being together with uh, such a politician animals who, which are doing this job for 20 years and they're very skillful. So it was extremely hard for me. Yes, I mean, looking at five, five candidates, four of them men, one of them women, it, it makes you wonder why. I mean, the Greens have two candidates, a man and a woman. They chose to send a man this time. They'll send a woman next time. But the Liberal group, they could have sent somebody like Commissioner Vestager, the Danish commissioner, who would probably have done a lot better in this debate than Giefer Hofstad did. She would have had them in the palm of her hands and given uh, Eichhout and Timmermans uh, a run for their money. They chose not to. 
That's the thing with gender balance. Even when parties have the possibility to send a women candidate, they don't. You know, one can one can appreciate Verhofstadt for what he's contributed to debate in the European Parliament and just simply standing up for the right thing quite frequently. But his replaying of his calls for a federalist Europe are starting to sound a bit tired. They're starting to sound a bit tired. And as it was also noticed several times at the debate, it doesn't represent many elder members anymore. It might once have done so, but now ask the Dutch, uh, ask many other elder members, and they would rather that he keep quiet. Mark Rutte would not want a federal Europe and he definitely wouldn't say it because it would kill him at home. Neither would Rasmussen from Denmark or the Swedes. I mean, there are many places where it's poison to talk federal Europe uh, in liberal circles. Right, right, right. Really interesting. So, Pella, what are your some of your main takeaways, starting with the sartorial? Well, uh, I have three like key takeaways or observations uh, from the debate. 75% of the men on stage didn't wear a tie. Uh, and I <laughs> suspect that for some, it might be the first time in their political career almost, they don't wear a tie. What was with the tireless idea, do you think? It's just 2019, very 2019? No, I think it was a young crowd and it's trying to appeal to the crowd and appeal less politician-like. And we've seen it before. Politicians wear a tie all throughout the four or five years of their mandate. And come campaign time, suddenly they need to appear more human and broad and, and off comes the tie. Number two is uh, the victory of the of the Dutch language. Uh, of the five persons on stage, 60% of them had Dutch as mother tongue. Then we had Czech and Slovenian, which also means where was French, German, English, Spanish or Italian. It's also a sign that this is a truly European debate. Everybody were debating for once in a language that was not their own. Number three is the triumph of the small states, especially with Weber not being there all of the candidates were from small to mid-sized countries. We have Slovenia, Czech Republic, Belgium and the Netherlands. And I think that's because oftentimes the smaller countries prevail when it comes to the commission presidency. Yeah, it actually kind of makes sense because if you go for it and you are from a small country, that is less threatening, right, to the larger member states. It is less threatening. And if you see the Dutch and the Belgians, for instance, they are both known for being good at making compromises and coalitions. Is that just a stereotype? No, look at their parliaments, look at their governments. You have to maneuver coalitions and, and you have to maneuver compromises. And both are also people or, or political traditions where you don't always need to be seen as taking the victory as long as politics goes in your direction. And that is a lot easier than this modern flamboyant politics that some have a tendency to, where what is important is that you're seen as winning rather than the result. I mean, can a democratic system really elect someone who the vast majority of voters have never even heard of? I mean, a lot of German voters have never even heard of Manfred Weber, and he's German. Yeah, I mean, if we take that point uh, first, last time the German candidate was Martin Schulz, and he had much wider brand name recognition, both in Brussels and throughout Europe. Uh, and that didn't seem to matter. Nobody voted, I think, as they did because of Martin Schulz, and nobody except a few Germans will vote as they do because of Manfred Weber. This Spitzenkandidat process last time didn't really gain traction in any place, uh, and it won't do it this time. And the thing is, if you're outside the Brussels circles, it seems very far away. And also there's this point that if you wanted to vote for that person on the stage, the chances of your being able to do that are 
infinitesimally small. Yes, indeed. I mean, um, if you like what Franz Timmermans said, unless you're Dutch or live in the Netherlands, you can't vote for Franz. You can vote for somebody who say they will support him. But being Danish living in Belgium, I can vote for Danish socialist or I can vote for Belgian socialist, but I can't vote for Dutch socialist even if I try. It's not a direct presidential race. Th- that and then the fact that for most European countries, we don't have presidential races. We have parliamentary democracy and parliamentary governance. And I think it's also on a philosophical level. Why is it that just because you gain the largest single group that you should become commission president? Why not say whoever can gather 51% of the European Parliament after the elections get to be the commission president? That would be parliamentary governance. Why not take the step full? Let's hear a bit from Jan Zahridil. He's a Czech politician and the candidate for what is increasingly the sort of hard right European conservatives. He also spoke to me after the debate to explain how he doesn't even agree with the process, which he calls little more than good fun. Rather than surrealistic, I would call it a big fun. So it's a bit of kind of imitation uh, of, of a genuine debate. On the other hand, these are the rules, and I am ready to play according to the rules, even if I didn't invent them. He's very, very half-hearted about the whole thing, even though he's part of it. And the public might be pretty half-hearted about this, too, if they know about it at all. Let's take, for example, the theater, which wasn't even full, I'm afraid. I was on the upstairs tier, and there were around five or six rows of empty seats. I have to say that did make me a bit sad. I must say, I think it was great the debate was there. I think it's needed. Uh, it's the whole framework around it, meaning the Spitzen candidate process, that is rotten. Uh, power to the people who did the debate, because if, as long as we have this system, at least we need to try and have a debate. Any quick thoughts, though, on how to get some kind of European debate in front of Europeans? Well, I'm not sure we can have a European debate in front of Europeans still for the simple reason that we don't debate European politics in a European forum. Some of us read and uh, and listen to and, and watch news in various languages, but the vast majority of Europeans watch their domestic news and that's the political world they subscribe to. So is this all sort of make-believe democracy or am I just being too harsh here? I don't think you're being too harsh. Uh, it is, it is a Brussels solution to people not caring about the European elections. Wow! The land of make-believe! Listen for the pretend spirit! <laughs> hello, hello! Over this way, here! Cross that lake! A fully functional European democracy is not the only fantasy you can indulge in Maastricht. Head for the university's arts and social sciences block, and you're unlikely to miss Coffee Shop Club 69 and the Great Canal Triple X Sex Shop on the bustling street directly opposite. But turn right into an unassuming gateway, and you're all of a sudden in a cozy 18th century courtyard that's calm enough to hear water lapping in an antique fountain. Upstairs, I met with Christine Neuhold, the professor of EU democratic governance at Maastricht University, who also runs the university's campus in Brussels. Her university helped organize the debate, and so I first put it to Professor Neuhold that the European Commission, a technocratic institution from the late 1950s, 
is trying to go into 21st century political show business by contriving a presidential contest. Can it produce a blockbuster? Blockbuster is maybe a bit far-fetched, but we had a very interesting debate. I was not bored for one second. So I thought it was actually also very entertaining. It was good to have the movies. It was good to have the topics. And what did we have for the first time? We had a debate about policy. And I think this is always lacking. So what do different people think about sustainability? What do they think about digital Europe? So we had more of a policy debate rather than just having programmatic statements. And if there was one policy point that was made, what really stuck with you? I was very struck by the last point that Timmermans made about we have to embrace the African sister. Franz Timmermans, the candidate for the Socialists and the Democrats, currently the vice president of the European Commission, not only the best informed in some ways yes. of the group, but also the hometown favorite. Yes, yes, yes. And he was leading the debate from the beginning. So he was the winner. The next generation, our task is to bring real reconciliation between Europe and Africa. That is the only way we're going to deal with the migration crisis. That is the only way we can retain our feeling of humanity. Because every time somebody dies in the Mediterranean, it's not they just dying, it's a piece of our humanity that is lost. And this opens a door to the nationalists, to the extremists, to the xenophobes. This opens a door to politicians describing other people as rats. I don't want to go back to that part of European history. I want us to embrace the future. And if you want one bold idea from me is embrace Africa as a sister continent that we need to develop together to create a prosperous future for all of us. That would be my bold idea. There were surreal elements to last night. Yes. And the real surreal element for many was that not all the actors were there. Manfred Weber, the head of the center-right, increasingly hard-right European People's Party, which is the biggest political group in Europe, was at his political mentor's birthday party. Yes. That was sort of odd. Yes. If I were his campaign advisor, I think I would know where I would have advised him to go. But he seemed to find it very important to go to his mentor and also explain to us why. He will be at the next debate. But of course, it was a big elephant in the room why he was not there. Another important point, the anti-European parties that could emerge from the May elections. They could form the second largest political group. It is possible in the next European parliament. But they weren't there either. And I, frankly, I didn't hear much discussion of the kind of deep, deep changes to the institution of the EU. That's absolutely true. Did you feel that that was lacking in light of the threat of nationalist, populist, far-right parties? If you would analyze the debate, I think as regards to the institutions, council was mentioned the most, commission was mentioned, but indeed no debate about the composition of the European Parliament. No, not much debate about what happens when it shifts to the far right, only that we will not cooperate with the far right, etc. Although it was on their minds, they didn't really spell it out. Maybe that was also because of the topics of the debate. What if you had like a Salvini, Le Pen type figure, a Farage type figure on that stage? Would you want to sort of go the no platform route, you know, not have somebody with objectionable points of view? Or would you want somebody on that stage who would prompt the debate that we just talked about? On the one hand, yesterday, as opposed to 
uh, five years ago, we did have uh, Saradil and we had Tomic. So we had more of a ver variety as of as compared to uh, last time. Yeah. But on the other hand, you're very right. I think we would have had him or her on stage. We would have gone for that because that's what politics is about. It's about debate. So I think the candidates, they are used to this. So they would have actually liked it. So we invited all candidates. They didn't come up with a candidate. They didn't send anyone. What does that tell us? I think it tells us something about the far right more in general. So they do not have, you know, a common platform. It's also very indicative that we don't remember the names of these political groups, yeah? Because there's so many of them. They're all split. They can dissolve very easily because they just manage to get the threshold it takes to form a political group. If one member leaves, it means one member state leaves and the whole group crumbles. So then have to look for it again. It took the Le Pen movement a year to form a political group. So it's not that easy. Barnier wasn't there either. Yes. Michel Barnier, the yes. Brexit negotiator, yes. he was giving a speech, I think, in yes. Leuven, making some very presidential sounding noises. Yes. So again, we have that sort of sense that perhaps somebody is missing from these debates, but they're a work in progress, aren't they? Yes, these absolutely. And that mirrors the European project yes, itself? Yes, that mirrors the, the project. It mirrors also the fact that last time, five years ago, it was the first time we ever had such debates. The question was even, do, it's not in the treaty. We don't have to have debates. That was something that developed. This is what I really like about European integration, that it's so constructivist. And the European Parliament was leading last time. Also, Juncker won the elections, was commission president. It would be very interesting to see what happens this time. And I'm not into any predictions. Huh? So what you said about Barnier, we also know that he might suddenly come out of the hat of the European Council. But on the other hand, he is not, and you don't like the word, but he's not a Spitzenkandidat. He has also not debated, and that's also for a reason, because he was not, you know, representing a political group. What's even more surreal is that the council itself has said, you know what, we don't really recognize this idea of a presidential system where the candidate who must be European Commission president emerges from the process of the European elections. So, again, to use your word constructivist, constructivist surrealist, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> well, the nice thing, I always go back, because this is the only thing that we have at the moment. Yeah. So the nice thing was the constructivist surrealist notion was there last time, and they still stuck to the treaty. Yeah. And I think they should. Yeah? Stick to your understanding of the treaty or your preferred understanding of Article 17. 17. Taking the European elections into account. Okay, that is a large box. I understand that. But still, strong, taking the elections into account means... Hmm? So this already implies that I have to make a translation of what that means. But we interpret it into the strongest political group. And lawyers have been pondering about this for the last five years as well. So in terms of specific politics, I felt that Timmermans was already sort of in coalition building mode. Did, yes. did you see that too? Absolutely. How did you see the green comment? Like, vote green. I saw that as more the socialists again, and you see this with Bernie Sanders in the United yes. States, kind of trying to park their tanks yes, yes. on the green lawn. But I think this one, I'm not sure that was intended. He wanted to say, you know, vote for green policies, but he missed the word policy. So then 
He said, vote green. And if you look at Twitter, it says, thank you, Timmermans, that you won. So I think he cut it a bit short. So first thing you need to do is to go and vote. Go vote green. Uh, and these three parties... <laughs> well, we've definitely made headline news tonight. <laughs> yes. Green is not the sole property of the Green Party. Green is what the unified left does, what we do, and we will do it together. We are not in a competition here. But at the same time, there was huge coalition building on. We had basically the grand coalition on the stage yesterday. And if you could just put it in the context of Maastricht itself. For those people who don't know anything about Maastricht and what it symbolizes. You know, the history of Maastricht, it is a Roman city, obviously, and it's a very medieval old city. But on the other hand, of course, Maastricht has put itself on the map by way of the Maastricht Treaty, and we have been celebrating um, its birthday many, many times in many, many different settings. It's actually a treaty for me about democracy. It introduced co-decision for the European Parliament. So for someone working on the European Parliament, that was a watershed for the European Parliament. But on the other hand, I heard a very different opinion. You know, this is a very negative treaty because of fiscal rules, etc. So I think it, you know, everyone picks what he or she wants to pick from that treaty. But it was, of course, a milestone in European integration. That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EU Screams, and like us on Facebook. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening.